Hi, I'm David Hendon, snooker commentator for Eurosport, and you're listening to the Time Out podcast with Tony McGettigan. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you're very welcome along to the 18th episode of the Time Out podcast uh, with me, Tony McGettigan, and who I would like to describe as the voice of snooker on Eurosport, and that is Mr. David Hendon. David, uh, thanks for taking the time to speak with me. No problem, Tony. Yeah, it's uh, Barry Hearn, you know, he hasn't got an easy job himself in the world snooker, but uh, if there's one man that can lead snooker into a good position during this pandemic, it's him. Yeah, I think Barry is an innovator, you know, and he sees everything as a challenge. So whereas this obviously has hit his business very seriously because all sport stopped for a number of months, he was not sort of, you know, worrying, worrying away. He, he was planning, OK, how can we actually rise to the challenge? And he's just had an event on, which I worked on the Championship League in, in Milton Keynes, where That's they right. devised... They devised effectively a sort of secure bubble. So the, the venue was linked to a hotel. You go in the hotel, you get tested. And if you get, if you test negative, you're allowed in a specific area, which includes the arena. And all this was kind of, you know, pulled out of the air. This tournament wasn't even supposed to be on, but it was a way of proving that snooker could um, happen safely. Obviously, again, no audience, but um, it was a great success. And, and that, I guess, is the model now for the World Championship. They sort of tested it out with this event and proved that they could do it. Yeah, that's going to be a strange one. And... But Barry Heron generally, uh, like when I look across Snooker, David, uh, he's done so much for Snooker in his time since he's come in, but there seems to be mixed feelings towards him on the actual circuit, you know, from certain players. You know, I th- Yeah, I think most players now um, are very much pro-Barry, not least because they've checked their bank balances in the last few <laughs> years, and they've, and they've gone up. I mean, there was when he first came along, I think a lot of players had sort of gone along you know, sort of almost treading water. And, and, and the minute he started to change things, they became a bit fearful about how, how it might affect them. Mark Allen was quite outspoken initially. Yeah. But I, I, I spoke to Mark, I interviewed Mark a couple of years ago, just before he won the Masters. And I asked him, now that he had time to reflect several years on, what he would give Barry out of 10. And he said 10 for the, for the, for the, the changes he's made. So I think, yeah, there's, the, look, you can't please everybody. Um, but... You know, I think at the top end, I can't see any reason to complain because no. the prize money is, the prize money has gone up, and the really good players are earning a lot more money than they were. Obviously, at the bottom end, it's a different story. But in sport, in any sport, that's the case, isn't it? You know, if, you, if you're not if you're not if you're not winning, you're not going to be earning. Yeah, hundred percent. Barry, when you look at what he's done with darts, especially too, like he's transformed darts into a global sport. Snooker is is fastly, it's always been the case, but it's fastly growing in popularity. We we see China, what's done. So I think Barry Heron personally, and from my opinion, deserves huge credit for what he's done for Snooker. Definitely, and and the thing with Barry is, you know, he's an ordinary bloke. He came from a council estate. He understands what ordinary people like. You know, Snooker and darts that you mentioned. They're working-class sports. He's very good at packaging it, it up, yeah. making it an event, making it something you want to be part of. You see on TV, you think, well, I want to be there. I'm going to buy tickets to the next event. And, you know, he, he's got the sort of common touch, but also obviously a great businessman. I mean, he started out as an accountant, you know, and he, he's obviously close to a pound note and, and, and runs runs a tight ship. But he puts on the, these events and, and in all sorts of niche sports, you know, I mean, he's made fishing a TV sport. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's quite incredible. Yeah, I mean, I think we're very lucky he's come along in the last few years. Definitely so. Um, and as snooker has grown, you know, the, the, I remember like I've been watching snooker for like 25 years and that. You've been watching a lot longer, no doubt, but it's a snooker calendar has grown massively. And mm. with that, uh, David, Eurosport's coverage, I have to commend Eurosport for the, the great coverage they have and your own um, position there. You, you do, you're, you're a fantastic team. Yeah, I mean, it, what the, obviously the value of Eurosport is it goes out across the whole continent. So, 
we go to something like 60 countries and a lot of these countries had never seen snooker until maybe 10 years ago and they've discovered what we sort of knew already in the UK and Ireland which is that it's a perfect TV sport obviously you know there's people who don't like it but we'll, we'll, we won't talk about them but but plenty of people do and it's it's kind of you know it's kind of spread its wings now so players have noticed in recent years when they go on holiday you know innocently they'll go to Spain or something or Portugal suddenly in those countries they're being recognised whereas 20 years ago that would never have happened unless it was the British, you know, people yes. that they were meeting or, or Irish people. So, yeah, there's definitely, I mean, the power of television, and, and we see it in China as well with their viewing figures, has definitely um, spread the word. But uh, but what you also need, of course, is good business sense in terms of, okay, how do you respond to that? And they've got a tournament in Germany. They just had one in Austria for the first time. Um, so the European market, I think, is very exciting. Yeah. And, 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 and Eurosport is certainly very happy with Snooker because the viewing figures seem to go up every year. Yeah, definitely so. And even with uh, just yourself, you, you know, you cover some tournaments too for ITV and the Championship <laughs> League was a big success as well, uh, David. Definitely. As I say, it was, it was um, you know, a sort of last minute thing. I mean, the, the strange thing was after the lockdown started, Barry Hearn actually had a heart attack um, and everyone was concerned that he might retire, he might walk away. But actually the opposite happened. It seemed to make him even more... Sort of resolved to, you know, swing into action. And it's not just him. He's got a big team at Matchroom and at World Snooker who, you know, work very hard. And, I mean, I've been to hundreds of events over the years, but I don't think I've ever been as impressed by the organisation as at this one because, obviously, they had to follow government regulations. Uh, they had to make sure everyone was secure. And you certainly felt secure. You know, as I say, you're in this bubble. Everyone, everyone tested negative, so 116 tests. They were all negative. And, you know, the tournament, of course, it didn't have an audience. But one, one strength, I think, it had was that it, it didn't, it wasn't in an arena with banks of seats in the background that were empty. It, they, they custom built sort of a background so you, there were no seats at all. So see, yeah. in a way, in, in a way you sort of tuned out of that and just concentrated on the snooker. And I think yes. what, what the quality of the snooker was really strong. Players took it very seriously. They were happy to be back playing. So it was a huge success. And, and again, like I say, the tournament, that tournament was never on the calendar. It was put together especially to provide playing opportunities and I think to show the rest of the sporting world that snooker could operate this way and, and, and it was successful yeah. in that. A very popular winner too, a young rising star from Belgium. Yes, very likeable yeah. player actually, Luca Brussel, and, and uh, very talented and like you mentioned with Eurosport, of course, you know, he's come from a country not associated with snooker but hopefully with the likes of him doing well and there are a few others coming through as well. Um, there's a player just coming on the tour from from Ukraine, actually. So yeah. th these these countries, hopefully, yes, they'd see the top stars on TV, but if they start to see their own players doing well, then hopefully that'll that'll inspire you know younger people to take up the game. Yeah, it's definitely going to grow as a result of more coverage. It, it can't be a bad mm. thing. Well, David, we've talked about the World Championship coming up, and um, uh, Stephen Hendry made the point that it's going to be a very open field. That um, you know, with the fact that players have been so inactive, that somebody could come from the pack that's not expected. But my own feeling is that the longer format, it's very likely the best will still come out on top. What's your feeling on that? I tend to agree. I think all the other thing is, of course, they're playing for half a million pounds. So the, the, that's pressure alone. You know, just the the size of the, the money they're playing for. I think obviously it's going to feel very strange at the Crucible without an audience. We think there won't be one. There's still talk there might be some people allowed in, but there won't be a full house. I think that's that's clear. Yes. Um, so you know, in theory, that would favour. You would think, I guess, some of the outsiders. But like I say, it's still the World Championship, and over the longer matches, you know, the, the the best players tend to win. So my theory is it will be won by a top player. But I think what's interesting is if you look at Judd Trump 
and Neil Robertson. They've been the two players of the season, really. Specifically, Trump has won six tournaments. But his momentum was completely halted by this whole lockdown. He won the last tournament before it in Gibraltar. And then everything stopped. And he came back and played in the, he played in the Championship League. Didn't really produce, you know, many big breaks and, and, and ultimately, of course, didn't win it. Neil Robertson went out in his initial group stage. The players that got to the last group, including Luca Bussell, who won it, they actually had had very little form during the season, yes. really. I mean, Stuart Bingham won the Masters, but outside of that, he hadn't done much. So it's interesting in that one event that, um, you know, the sort of, some of the lower ranked players did well, but of course they were very short matches. I think at the Crucible, you know, once they get sort of, um, used to the new normal, if you like, of, of playing, you know, without an audience, it will, it will actually be basically back to, back to business as usual and it will be the same sort of tournament. I suspect with the same sort of winner, yeah. who that exactly is going to be, I don't know, but I suspect it will be, you know, someone who would be on the sort of short list of 10 yeah. that you would write out before it starts. I don't think I can, I can't see a major surprise and, uh, of course, Judd Trump is going to be in line to try and end the hoodoo of the first time champion. <laughs> Yes, uh, no first time when he's ever ever defended the title. Again, though, it's a slightly different circumstance. I, in a way, and it seems odd to say this because whoever wins it is going to pick up half a million pounds, but I feel slightly sorry already for whoever wins it because whoever wins it, people are going to say, well, yes, but you didn't win it That's in normal right. circumstances. Even if it's Ronnie O'Sullivan, who's won it five times, or Judd Trump, who's who won it last year, or if it's, you know, someone out the pack, let's say, I don't know, let's say Luca Brussel comes and wins it. Whoever it is, they're going to have that sort of asterisk next to them where it will have to be explained that there was no audience. But, you know, whoever wins it will have deserved to. The game hasn't changed. The game is still very difficult. The, the, the length of matches haven't changed. Um, so it's just that slightly different feeling. But I think, I do think when they start concentrating the players on the matches, that that, in a way, will, will recede into the background. They'll just be focusing on the hard bit, which is actually playing. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting sort of situation, uh, David, because it's something that hasn't been encountered too much in the past. Mm. And uh, it's definitely going to be very strange because for me, sport isn't is very little without fans you know definitely i think though i think the one thing that snooker has has sort of on its side in that score is that that it's one of the few sports where the, the live audience have to be quiet you know in darts i mean dar darts would be in a lot worse position without the audience because they make the That's entire right. atmosphere whereas at the crucible you know in a way, the atmosphere is is the sort of intimidating silence now obviously there's going to be a lot of that this year because because there's no audience at all um yeah, it's a shame uh, that they that they can't go, or it looks like they can't have a sort of full, full you know, yeah. full number of of people there. But it, hopefully, it'll be a one-off. You know, hopefully, this will be the last time it happens there. And you know, as I say, things are slowly coming back to normal. Some of the cinemas are going to be opening next month, and so on. So live audiences are going to start hopefully. to come back. Um, I, I still think that it will be a great event, regardless of that. Um, once you yes. just focus on the mat on the matches, you know it's still uh, going to be a great tournament. I think. I definitely think so, uh, David. I definitely agree with you. It still has to, at the Crucible, and still has the it'll still have plenty of drama, and there'll still be mm. audiences watching on on different uh, platforms. Um, just uh, for those watching or listening to this podcast, like myself, um, David, that are massive sort of fans of snooker in general, the history. It dates back to 1927 when the first World Championship was held in Birmingham. And, and but a lot of people, I suppose, when you think of great winners of the World Championship, uh, Stephen Hendry and, and Steve Davis is thrown in there. But Joe Davis was the first real legend of, of, uh, of the World Championship. Yeah, and his place in the history books is not just confined to winning it, which he did 15 times yes. in a row. He, he also essentially started it. Um, he, he was the driving force between actually getting a, a professional 
tournament on because in those days the leading cue sport was billiards and the sort of billiards community were very sniffy towards snooker which they saw as a bit of an upstart yeah. So the fact that the fact that he got it on they, the the trophy that is still presented to this day he went out and bought using half the entry fees you know so he's a very important figure and, and the amazing thing about him of course is he had no one to learn from you look at the players now you know you can turn on the TV if you're a young player now you can study Ronnie yeah. study Ronnie Hendry all these all these people he didn't have anyone who, who even to go and watch live so he had to sort of learn his, his father ran a pub where there was a snooker table and he and his brother Fred learned to play on that and he he was definitely a very important figure and thankfully he lived just long enough to see the World Championship go to the Crucible in the in the late seventies. He actually saw the start of that, so that's he would have seen the sort of start of the real television age. Yeah, Joe Davis, what a record! Fifteen in a row. That that's pretty impressive when you when you actually say that. You know, regardless mm-hmm. of the era and the, the, you know the standard, that's impressive in any in era era. Yeah, it's fair to say it was a very different tournament. I mean, several years there's only two people in it, him and the challenger. So obviously he didn't have the the competition that they have now, but he still had to win, uh, and he he never lost in the world championship. Eventually retired, um, and his brother Fred, you know, started winning it and others. I mean, snooker in those days, you know, was not in a great position. There was no prize money because there was no television, or the television there was was black and white. And obviously right. snooker, snooker, you kind of need colour to to, to follow it. But it, yeah. but think, things changed, you know, with Pop Black in 1969, and 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 the interest in the 70s, particularly regarding Alex Higgins and all of that. I'm sure people know eventually a sort of boom happened in, in, in the 80s in Britain. But it's po- important to say that, you know, that was pretty much only Britain and Ireland then. What's happening now is that you're getting a lot of interest, as we've already mentioned, from, you know, other parts of the world. And that's obviously important for if you want the game to be global. Yeah, very important and it's uh, vital for the growth of the game. I, I follow you on Twitter, David, and I've seen uh, you, you're always um, putting up interesting tweets about the, the history of snooker. And mm. I've seen one you put up the other day which fascinated me in relation to 1952 <laughs> and the World Championship, which was best of 145. Mm. <laughs> I thought it was a misprint. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it sounded horrendous. Again, it was it was two players... And uh, Horace Lindrum and Clark McConaughey were the players. And basically, best of 145, and Horace Lindrum uh, got to the, the winning mark, whatever it was, 73 or something. Um, but there were still 33 frames to be played, so they so they still played them. So even though the other guy couldn't win... Makes no sense. Because, they'd, well, because I guess they'd sold tickets. They, they thought, well, we... But, the, but that wasn't the worst of it. The worst of it was they decided as well in every frame to pot every ball. So even if someone went eight nil up and the other guy, you know, needed ten snookers, yes. they would still they would still grimly just <laughs> just that play sounds, out the frame. In, that sounds painful. Well, in, yeah, in those days, I guess they knew no difference. They thought that was entertainment. But I mean, now it would be intolerable. And, and yeah, I mean, yeah. clearly, you know, playing a match for essentially three weeks, you know, one match just that is overkill. No, that that is definitely a, a, mm. a bit OTT, but I found mm. that one fascinating. That that uh, <laughs> when I saw it, it, it made me chuckle. And mm. of course, the Crucible you touched on there, nineteen seventy-seven. John Spencer was uh, was the first winner, and uh, yeah. on then to, to of course, which was a big move. Before I move on from John Spencer in seventy-seven, that was a big move to, to the Crucible, um, uh, David. Very much so, and it was it was really by chance. I mean, the promoter at the time, Mike Watterson, was looking to take it. They they had it uh, with them to a forum the year before, and it hadn't done very well. And various other venues in the seventies, and he wanted a, a permanent home for it. And his wife Carol, because the Crucible is a theatre, she went to see a play there, came back and said, "I know you're looking for a venue. I, I think this might you know this might be the place." And he went and checked it out. There was only just room to get the tables in. I mean, it's, you know, anyone who's been there knows how small it is, and even oh, watching on TV, yeah. it, you can see how close you know the front row are to the players. So only just room for the tables, but 
he took a chance on it. The players, you know, really like it. The, the great thing about the Crucible, apart from just the, the you know, the, the intimate venue, is it's right in the centre of uh, the uh, Sheffield City Centre. So it's accessible. It's like a five-minute walk from the train station. There's stuff around it, hotels, bars, you know, shops. Mm-hmm. So it's very much part of the community there. And obviously it's become, you know, synonymous uh, with snooker as well. So, yeah, it was it was an inspired move. I mean, he couldn't possibly have known, you know, the, the, the history that it would generate. But, but what a great decision that was. Oh. Definitely the home of snooker, and I think the compactness actually makes it the special venue it is. And uh, when you think of all the great games, and of course none greater, I suppose, than 1985, uh, David, the the final between Dennis Taylor and uh, Steve Davis, of course, going down to the black ball. Yeah, the thing about that final is the the actual standard, you know, objectively throughout the match wasn't that high, but the finish. It was the best drama ever, and it's still very much talked about now. Um, and the the sort of the the extra layer to that is that who was involved? You know, Steve Davis was looking for a, a third title in a row. He he was becoming invincible, unbeatable. Went eight nil up. Absolutely. You think this is gonna this is gonna be over? You know, probably with a session to spare. And and Dennis, you know, it was nothing if not a fighter. Dug in. He was very stubborn as a player, and also had tremendous bottle and fight. And in the end, you know, got the job done. In an extraordinary, you know, you couldn't have scripted it better the way it finished. And the fact, and it's more important as well because he won. He he was the underdog, proving that you could actually, you know, upset the odds, and that and even Steve Davis could lose. Incredible, really. And I think, in fairness to Steve, I mean, I think it helps that he's he's also won it six times. But he 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 embraces all that. He doesn't shy away from it. Obviously, he wanted he wanted to win, but I think he's he's pleased to have been part of something that. You know, people Historic. will still be t- still still be talking about probably fifty years from now. Oh, definitely so. And as you say, there quite rightly. So, like it, it set a kind of a, a a benchmark almost because, of course, Joe Johnson then came on and, of course, beat uh, Steve Davis in the final. And, and I saw actually, I, I, I seem to recall another funny tweet you put up in relation to Joe Johnson. I think it was you in a way um, in relation to that uh, he had taped the final on, on a VHR. <laughs> was it a VHS? Mm. Sorry. Yeah, he took the final years ago um, and hadn't really watched it, but um, some friends came around and never seen it. So he he said, oh, I'll just show you like the last frame. Got the tape out and it wasn't it wasn't on the tape. His kids had, had taped over it with he, He-Man oh. Masters of the Universe, um, which was a bit gutting for Joe. But thankfully, um, the BBC had kept, you know, all the footage, so they managed to supply him with a replacement. But it was a bit of a shock, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, that, I can imagine his face from that. Come on. <laughs> wouldn't, have been, wouldn't have been a pleasant story mm. but uh, of course then on to 1990s Stephen Hendry of course the the, the dominance yeah. of, of Stephen Hendry and uh, just uh, what, what that guy has done for snooker as well um, David a great uh, of course seven times winner yeah I mean Stephen Hendry he sort of copied Steve Davis's mindset but he played a different game I mean Davis you know, could score heavily, but he was still associated with the sort of match play all round snooker. Hendry had no time for safety; he just wanted to pot everything. And 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 he and he, and for about ten years, he did. You know, he was an incredible player. He had that incredible desire to win that Steve had, but he also had the uh, a new game. And I think Hendry, we talk about him in terms of records quite rightly, but I think that he should be noted as a, a real game changer because all the players, you know, Sullivan's and Mark Williams's and all these people who've come along since, Judd Trump will be another example. They have essentially copied his approach, you know, attack, score heavily, right, yeah. and and in that and in that way, the game is completely changed. Um, so yeah, he he was an extraordinary uh, figure. You know, he, he started playing snooker at the age of twelve, and at the age of seventeen, he was playing at the Crucible. So it took about four and a half years from literally picking up a cue to playing 
playing in the World Championship, and yet no one ever, no one ever sort of lumps him in with the sort of natural talents. But he must have had some natural ability for it. And you know, he he also, I think, quite classily retired early. I mean, a lot of people would like to see him carry on, but he just decided he couldn't yeah. win anymore. So so put the well, queue down, do something else. Well, I, I actually respect that because at mm. the end of the day, if you can't, if you don't feel you can do yourself justice, what's the point? He wouldn't have enjoyed just turning up and, and getting beat by people he, he thought he should beat. So I think, you know, look, he, 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 he can't not retire satisfied. He, he'd won seven world titles and that that record, you know, I mean, Ronnie O'Sullivan's on five, but he's not won it now for, for seven years. So that record of seven, that could stand for a long time. I think, it, I don't know, when I, when I look at Ronnie and I see, you know, when I hear him talking about the World Championship, uh, it just seems to be like he mentally doesn't look forward to it. Very much so. I think yeah. essentially what happened was he lost to Mark Selby in the 2014 final. That was the first final that he'd ever lost. Right. And he was he was a long way in front. And on the last day, Selby did what he does. He dug in. He started to play well. And, you know, he, and he won. And I think that planted in Ronnie's head the, the seed that, you know, you can play for 16 days and still lose on the 17th. And that the World Championship really is just a bit too much of a slog. And he actually says that now when he's interviewed before the tournament. Like you say, he talks about it being too much of a mouth and essentially too hard because prior to that, obviously he'd lost in early rounds before, never lost in a final, and, and I think that that was a big moment for him. He's won a lot. He's won a lot of tournaments since then, but he's never won that again. Never even been in the one table back no. in the semis or the final since. So you know, look, if he wins it this year, it's not any sort of you can't call it a shock. But his his recent form there. I mean, he lost first round last year to an amateur. So right, yeah. his recent his recent form, you know, he's not encouraging. No, def definitely not, and it's not. Uh the Ronnie we know, and he's had a couple of first round exits, but it's never, it's always come as a, it's a shock to people. But um, in regarding the Masters, it was a strange decision. I found David from the pilot of the Masters this year. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't know. I mean, yeah. he, he 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 didn't play in that. He did play in the Championship League, which involved getting tested, and you know, it was not a big money event at all. I think. You know, we've, we've spent years, decades in some cases, trying to figure, like, Ronnie out as a person. And, and in the end, I think you have to concede defeat. He's yeah. a complete, a complete one-off. Um, you know, a, the best player I've ever seen, yeah. quite comfortably. But, you know, you, you can't sort of, from day to day, really predict what he's no. going to do, what he's going to say. And I guess, to be fair, that sort of keeps the pot boiling for a lot of it people. Is. A lot of people enjoy that. He brings a lot of attention to the game. You know. And, and the main thing is, I think, you know, when people look back in a hundred years' time, they'll they'll look at what he's done on the table. They won't be talking no. about something he said, something he said in a newspaper on on some Wednesday. Yeah. You know, you're right. You're you're right, David. In the sense of what he's done to the what he's done for the game. You know, mm. for me, he's the most like the greatest player that's left in the queue. In, in my opinion. Yeah, and. And you and if I ever meet anyone from another country who's new to snooker, he's the first player they ever mention. Yeah, he's, I, there was I had an email from a guy in America recently who who discovered snooker by chance on YouTube and, and spent sort of the night just watching Ronnie O'Sullivan shots and matches. Um, he's brought you know great um, support to the sport and you know great excitement for many people. And, and he's always even though he's as this, as we've already said, probably the best player ever. He's still also an unknown quantity, which makes him quite exciting. That is, no one knows. I don't think Ronnie knows himself. Which Ronnie's mm. turn up? And I saw an interesting debate that came up recently. Uh, David, I just wanted your thoughts on it before we move on to song number uh, four. And was the best player that hasn't won the world championship? And mm. there was a strange one that came up, uh, to, uh, sort of a pairing between Jimmy White and Ding Jun Wee. Now, for me personally, Jimmy White, it would be Jimmy White, but what's your thoughts on that? I, I would say Jimmy. I, I think the reason I would say Jimmy, apart from the fact he was a great player, 
is you can't identify any year where Ding should have won it. You can with Jimmy. There's two years in, in, in particular, 92 and 94. Yes. Uh, the, the 92, he was 14 8 up and lost the last 10 frames, lost 18 14 to injury. And 94 in a decider, you know, missed a, sim- a simple black when he was essentially in to, to win the title, not too far from winning it. And Hendry again right. cleared up. So those, those two years, you know, I think you could argue Jimmy should have won it. There's been none of that with Ding. He's been in one final, but he was playing Mark Selby, who would have been favourite. Uh, Ding's, I think, underperformed, considering he's, he's immense talent at the Crucible. He has. But, but you look at Jimmy, I mean, six finals, you know. Yeah, um, some Some semi-finals as well. Yeah, I think at the moment he certainly yeah. um, is number one. On, he don't want to be number one on that list, but that's. Yeah. I think he... I think, and I think, I think actually, I, the second, I would put Matthew Stevens, who's been in a couple of finals and, and a few semi-finals and, yeah. and had a great chance... Both finals he was in, he was, he, was, he was leading. So, yeah, for me, actually, Ding's third on that list. Fantastic match. Player Matthew Stevens, I actually saw him playing Ronnie live mm. in Dublin in Irish Masters final in 2005. And it, it went all the way. I think it was actually 10-8. I think it just finished and instead of going to the final frame. But what a match. Player Matthew Stevens is in... Yeah, oh, yeah. fantastic. Yeah, yeah no, great, great player. And I think, though, you have to be careful, and, and I fall into this trap sometimes, of calling people underachievers. You know, he won the Masters in the UK Championship and was in two world finals. A lot of people, a lot of people who, who as boys were picking up snooker cue would actually think that was a good career, which of course it has been. Well, you'd bake somebody's <laughs> hand off for that, you know? Yeah, yeah. When you, get, when you take the standard that's, that's going, you know? Mm. Well, David, just a few quick questions to finish off. Um, sort of quick fire questions. Can you remember what you would call your favourite match you've commented on? One of your favourite matches? Uh, I've done a lot, but I would say I think the best quality would be the world final two years ago between Mark Williams and John Higgins. Oh, yeah. um, and it was uh, the final session, it looked like it would be a runaway. Mark was 15-10 up. Um, Higgins won a succession of frames with unbelievable clearances. And, you know, the pressure was really on Mark at 17-16. He'd, he'd missed a chance to win 18-15. Right. And then he just made a great break to win it. And I was happy for him because I sort of, when I started, he was roughly the same age, me and him. And, you know, he, he was just making his way then. And to see him win it again 15 years after his second title, I just thought was fantastic. Well, I actually watched that, believe it or not, on YouTube recently. The, nice. the, the tension yeah. frame that he had. And I remember my thoughts in the lead up to the, before he knocked on that opening red to the middle. Mm. And yeah. the, the, the thoughts went through my head was, I can't wait to see how Williams is going to respond to this pressure mm. now that to John Higgins put on. And it just sums up Mark Williams as a character, because the, the cool manner in which he knocked in that uh, match one and break, I just thought, under that pressure, you can't really teach that. No, absolutely. No. And, and the, th- the fact is, up to that point, Higgins had played the best snooker in, in the session, you know. I mean, and John Higgins, you know, you give him a chance from 50 or 60 behind, but nine times out of 10, he'll clear up. So Mark knew going into that frame, if I give him a chance, we go to a decider and, and then Higgins is probably a big favourite. So yeah, very classy, but that's what great players do, you know, they, they seize the moment like that. I was very, very impressed with that, just as a, as a, you know, just in terms of the bottle that he, that he had. Mm. Mm. Uh, future star for the future someone that you could see dominate I know Judd Trump is a man that some people are, are, are saying that could potentially do it what's your thoughts I suppose it depends what you mean by dominate because there's so many tournaments now you know if there's 20 tournaments a year what's domination is it winning you know 10 of them is it winning yes. 6 or 7 I think I think I mean Trump's won 6 ranking events this season That's which is good. more than more than anyone's ever won before, but of course, there's more than, there are more now than there ever That's been right, before. Yeah. Um, I, I th- yeah, look, he's, he's the perfect age. He's only 30. He's now got his first world title, which was the one thing that he was looking to 
to, to get done. Um, I'd be very surprised if he didn't win more. He's got a fantastic attitude. He wants to win as much as possible. Great to watch. He's very, very, yeah, great to watch. Yeah. Very driven, practices hard. So at the moment, look, he's definitely the player who yeah. you could see cleaning up in the next few years. But you, you don't know. I mean, the, there's various players coming through from China who are making their work, the rankings without quite um, sort right. of doing what Ding's done, but there's a young lad now, Yan Bing Tao, he's only 20, he's got himself in the top 16 at the age of 20, which impressive. is pretty impressive. Uh, Trump beat him in a final a few months ago, but I think he, he's got something about him, because he's not just a, a potter, he's actually got quite a good tactical brain, and, and if he can continue to improve, which at the age of 20, surely he will do, I think he could certainly be one to watch, but definitely at the moment, Trump, Trump. must know that, he must know that this is his time, and, and yeah. he, 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 he has really kicked on from that world title, he, he wants to win everything, which is great. Well, of course, and as you said there, the fact there's more tournaments now too, David, it gives mm. you the opportunity to put more, uh, as I say, silver on the mantelpiece. And um, but no, no doubt in his his talent, he's definitely the star of this era at the, at the minute. At, at, at the he, minute. yeah, I mean, Trump, Trump Trump can play shots that even O'Sullivan can't play. Just his cue power back, and yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, he, he, very, very very entertaining, but he doesn't sacrifice that. You know, he doesn't sacrifice trying to entertain the crowd in terms of not then you know like Alex Higgins used to do he would try and entertain and, and, and sort of forget that he's got to win a match as well there's none of that with Trump he'll, he'll do the exhibition stuff when he's won a frame but before that he's just trying to as I say win as much as he can and, and you know he's, he's going to earn a million pounds prize money for, for the second season running so doing something right <laughs> yeah. definitely matured as a player Trump because I remember mm. in 2012 when he lost to John Higgins in the world final there was a sort of erraticness about his play, you know, in the sense of mm. he's taking on probably too much. But now he's a very rounded player, Judd Trump. Well, he's learned, I suppose. Yeah. He learned from losing, and he lost that final. But yeah, I, yeah, he's all round player. I think he's he's an example because he's been playing since he's about five. You know, he's been playing all his life essentially, and I think he he has an instinctive talent for it. He comes to the table, he sees everything sees every shot and increasingly now will play the safety and will play really well so he's a, he's a, a very worthy world number one and you know yeah. he could well break that crucible curse I mean as I say that his momentum has been halted by by everything but once he gets there you know he may, he may well fancy it again that's it if he gets through that first round as I say the dreaded mm. first round sometimes can be the trickiest hurdle for a lot of players um, if there's one rule snooker rule you could change David <laughs> what would it be I think um, the misrule is not quite um, – I, I have a slight problem with it because it applies universally. Uh, if there's 15 reds on, it applies the same as if there's one red on. So if you're in a snooker with 15 reds on and you can't hit one, then that is definitely should be a miss and it should go back because there's 15 reds. You've got to hit one of them. But if there's one red on and it's quite a difficult snooker, Sometimes the referees won't won't call it, but nine times out of ten they will. It always seems a little bit harsh, and also that rule doesn't sort of look at the scoreboard and look at um, the position in the match. You can lose a frame essentially from the misrule. Yes. Um, so look, it's better than it used to be when when there wasn't one and people would just essentially not try and get out of a snooker. But it can be harsh, and I mean, actually, Trump played uh, Tep Chara Nu from Thailand in a, in a final in China earlier this season. And Tepchaya was lost a frame on, on the three miss and you're out rule. Right. And it was actually quite, it's actually quite harsh because there's only one ready you could essentially see and it was a very difficult shot. The rule was, was applied correctly by the referee, but it just seemed a bit harsh. So it's a rule, it's a rule that no one's ever quite been happy with, but equally no. no one's ever quite, no one's ever quite worked out what they should, how they should change it. But maybe it needs looking at it again. Yeah, it's definitely one of them rules that I think down through the years, it's almost the, the word that springs to mind with me is, uh, harsh. 
Mm. You know, it can, it can be. be. Yeah. It can be. And it can be harsh the other way around because the, the times when, the rare times where it's not called is when you're in a really tough snooker. Really tough. But, but from the other player's perspective, what's the point in laying a really tough snooker if you're not going to get any value from it, essentially? So I think, yeah, it's, it's one of those rules that you kind of, we've all sort of put up with, but, maybe could be looked at again. Yeah, I think you've definitely got something there, but it's, uh, it'll be interesting to see in the coming years, will, will that change? Mm. Um, we see the shot clock introduced, um, David, for, of, co- of course, the, 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 the shootout. Do, mm. do you think it could be brought in for more tournaments? No, I don't think there's any need for it. I, th- I don't think slow play's an issue. There are some slow players, but they tend not to appear on TV very much. And also... There's a lot of events now, the Home Nations events, for example, where you have a multi-table setup. And if you had a shot clock, you would, you need some sort of buzzer to go off to, you know, alert players when the time was up. Just imagine how that would sound. You know, if you've got eight tables and lots of buzzers sounding, it would be, it would be like playing in a casino, you know. So I, I, I don't think it's an issue. I think it works in the shootout because that's a unique event. And I think once a year, that's absolutely fine. It's a lot of fun, actually. But I don't think slow play actually is, is any sort of issue. And I think also, you know, we talked about the 80, final you know that wouldn't have been improved if they'd been ru- if they'd been rushing around the table the, no. the whole the whole point of that drama was that it was slow burning and i actually think that snooker fans really like that oh, you know so I, yeah yeah so i don't i don't see any need for that no it's definitely a, a sort of traditional thing to you know if you just if you start mm. yeah bringing in I, I do agree with you in the sense of the, sh- the the shootout is one of them unique events you know, it's, mm. uh, it's no really need to bring it in, I suppose. Um, what about your uh, uh, personal question, David? Your own high break on a snooker table, or do you play? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to plead the fifth. There, there is an answer, but it, it's not very impressive. I mean, I used to play um, when I was younger. Um, I wear glasses, which is why I actually admire Dennis, because it's very hard to play in glasses if your eyesight isn't great. Yeah, and tw- twelve foot t- playing on a six foot table. The game seems a lot easier than when suddenly you get on the twelve foot table, and the table looks enormous. Looks like a field. Um, yeah, and 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 some players, you know, obviously go on and, and and master it. But for most people, a frame of snooker actually is not a lot of fun because it can take forever if you're not that great. And having been around the, the greatest players ever, you know, I, I have no ambitions to resume my my snooker career at all. <laughs> yes, <laughs> no. I suppose when you see the, the level that they play at. Mm. No, it's, uh, yeah, but your your high break off the top of your head. You're well, yeah, I I know what it is. I'm I'm not I'm not going to tell oh, you because it's not very impressive. <laughs> hey, when I was younger, I, I had a spell where I was making half centuries. You know, yes. um, not many. I've got to be honest, but well, I, I made a, I made a few. I made a few, but yeah, but but yeah, it, yeah. it was. Ne- I I never had any notions at all of being a player, I a see. professional player. I Just see. wasn't wasn't up to it. It is a hard game that I play only very casually now and again and mm. when you go from a pool table to a snooker table, it's a huge culture shock. You know, oh yeah, and then that's why pools. That's why pool is so popular because it's just easier. It's, it just, it's a more social. It's, it's more easier. social gaming. It's yeah. over quicker. The pockets are bigger. I mean, it's as simple as that. And yeah, and you, and, and it's just over quicker. It doesn't take an hour to play a frame of pool. Yeah, <laughs> I have to give you a big credit as well. Um, the, the world snooker and um, yourself. You're a commentator on this game on the PS4 game Snooker 19, David. Mm. Yes, I actually do enjoy now playing it. I'm playing it on different levels. I've I've tried out Pro Plus and Master Plus, but it's a really good game. Um, yeah, it is very. It's very clever. I mean, don't ask me how they put it together. It's some very clever people. But from my perspective, me and Neil, me and Neil Folds um, 
basically had to sit in a room recording studio for three days, recording every permutation you can imagine that comes up in a in a match, and then obviously they find a way of, of knitting it all together. But yeah, it's um they actually just had the virtual world championship, That's in, right. you know, that. In, in, in in the absence of the, the real world championship, and um. I commentated on the final, which, that. um, yeah. which was a lot. It, even uh, Mark Selby, even, even the virtual Mark Selby played a, a lengthy decide. It was 75 minutes. But anyway, um, yeah, so that was interesting. Just, it was a different sort of, um, you know, experience. And, and, and on the game, you can take on a long blue with the confidence of getting it. Whereas at the crucible itself, there's a bit it's more just, pressure, I guess. Yeah, it's a different, it's a different kettle of fish. <laughs> mm. But do, do you think yeah. for gaming fans right there, David, do you think there'll be a follow up to this game? I honestly don't know. I've not heard yeah. anything, but but I, I I know it's been quite successful. So yeah. I'd be surprised. I'd be surprised if 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 there wasn't something, you know, maybe in the next year or so. I really, I must say, I'm impressed by the game in terms of the the, the mm. physics as well and uh, the graphics. It's it's quite a, it's it's an impressive game and all the wee sort of side shots. So just the little things. I think they've done really well on on that game. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's like I say, they're very clever. I have no idea how to do it, but but, yeah. but they they are immersed in this in this world. Yeah, so yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it is it, a lot of work's gone into. It, I know that. Yeah, your favourite sports star away from snooker. Um, I think currently I would say well in the last sort of decade or so I would say Roger Federer yeah. uh, is someone I really admire. Just oozes class. Um, the fact that he can conduct interviews in about five languages, you know, yeah. I think is amazing. And that's leaving aside just how good he is. I yeah, just think he's he brought so much to his sport and just never done anything wrong as far as I can see. No. Um, going back when I was younger, outside of snooker, it would have been Ian Botham, the England cricketer, who cricket. um, was just, yeah, an incredible sight to see in every department. And, and an example of someone who... Always, always, always wanted to do his best. You know, he, he loved playing for England. He's very proud to play for England. And, you know, he, uh, a couple of times, essentially single-handedly won test matches for England. So he was uh, a great hero of mine growing up, yeah. Yes, two interesting answers there. Of course, the elegance of Roger Federer in terms of the way mm-hmm. he was just so skillful <laughs> to watch on a tennis court. Mm. I, th- I can't think of anyone that comes close to him in terms of the brilliance that he would show on, mm. on, a, on a tennis court. And... Uh, uh, cricket now I wouldn't be a massive um, watcher of it but I definitely appreciate the skill level that's involved in cricket well this, yeah I think test cricket is a bit like snooker as much as there's long periods where it seems like there's nothing happening but actually that's if you're a spectator that's a good thing you don't have to focus on it, absolutely everything that's going on you can actually switch off a little bit and then suddenly something will happen that draws you back in that's and right. I think I think cricket is a sport you either like it or you don't and that's a lot it. of people don't a lot of people don't which is fine but if you do I think you really like it yeah I prefer I prefer now that, like for example the World Cup those on there like mm. I really love them sort of one day events do you know what I do enjoy the, the shorter format yeah but uh, yeah well I think I think it's good that there's and it's the same in snooker it's good that there's different different forms of, of sports that different people can enjoy definitely so uh the last question i'm going to ask you um uh, david is to touch on the fact that uh, i saw in your twitter bio that you're also a, a playwright yeah yeah that's interesting. yes yeah i mean i've been doing that for a few years um obviously at the moment uh, all the theatres are closed which is you know not not great for anyone who's yeah. working in theatre but i essentially it started when I wanted to do a play at the Edinburgh Fringe um, 2016, which I wrote a play and it got on there and that kind of started, I guess, my real interest in doing it. And since then, 
done various other plays here and there. Um, and I was supposed to be doing one in Edinburgh this year, but obviously got cancelled the fringe. Um, but yeah, it's something different. It's something I, 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 I spend a lot of time at tournaments and if you're commentating, you're not necessarily working all day long. You might be just sat in your hotel. So it's also something to sort of do. You have time on your hands. Which is, it, yeah. Yeah, which is, which is outside of the actual event. It's something you can turn off from the event and put your mind to something else. I've always liked writing. You know, I've been a journalist for many years as well. So, yeah, it's just something I, I, I enjoy doing. That's, I find that fascinating now. And uh, mm. is there any particular, like give us an example of something you might have done, like a, a play that you might have... Uh, well... The the play that I was supposed to do um, in Edinburgh is about a man with I mean, it's not a happy play at all. It's about a man with um, in his fifties who develops dementia. So it's a story about how his sort of memories leave him and and he changes as a person. It's a one man show. He changes as a person throughout the course of the, the play. Now, as I say, it's not it's not a fun show, but it's shining a light on yeah. something that a lot of families I think would would identify with and we've do, we did do it in london a couple of years ago and we had a lot of people um come up to us afterwards and talk about their own experiences and in a way almost it's their sort of permission to start talking about these yes. experiences because they've seen it represented somewhere so i'm co- quite interested in you know sort of contemporary issues um and yeah that was definitely one of them um like i say hopefully what is it's not not on this year but hopefully it'll be on next year yeah, that, that must give you great uh, sort of pride, um, David, because as you say, um, it's not the happiest topic, but it's a topic that touches many people. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. And I think it's always interesting to get feedback. I mean, obviously, you know, you get reviewed and you get audience feedback. It's interesting to hear what people think. Um, but, you know, I've written a lot of different things. I wrote a comedy, um, which was hard because if people aren't laughing, it hasn't, it hasn't worked. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I, I just think, you know, you've got to kind of have the courage of your convictions. If, if it means something to you personally, then, you know, try and put it in front of other people and, and you can't control how they'll respond to it. But hopefully, you know, they will at least think about it and, and, and give you some feedback. Well, I'd definitely like to, to wish you the, the very best with that uh, and uh, Thank you. the snicker commentary and all your work with Eurosport, David, because um, I personally think that, uh, I'm not just saying this, but you're a fantastic team and you do a great job on uh, on, on commentary. And, uh, thank you. David, I would like to thank you very much for taking the time to speak with not me. Not at all. On this no podcast, problem. and uh, like to as I say, as I just mentioned, like to wish you all the best with the uh, World Championship coming up, and uh, uh, as I say, take care and all the very best to you and all the team at Eurosport too. too. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, folks. So until again, take care and goodbye.